All right, welcome back to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. I, I guess there's no reason to have to say the name of the podcast every time, is there? I mean, you know what you're listening to. Anyhow, uh, today's going to be good, or tonight, or this morning, whenever it is that you're listening to this. We're going to get into some uh, racism and reparations stuff and uh, relational stuff. And actually, I do have an answer by the end of the episode for both reparations and racism. That's right. I'm audacious enough to suggest that I actually have an answer to one of our country's most intractable problems. But we're going to also talk a lot about René Girard, mimetic theory, scapegoating. And Girardian stuff has been really key for me as I have been reconstructing my theology. And I'd say even my own psychology and understanding of myself and also understanding of others. And so I was really grateful to get an opportunity to talk to Peter Rollins, James Allison, and Julia Robinson Moore a bit about Girardian ideas, and each of them have important takes on it. I could have talked all day with each of them. Fortunately for you, I didn't. But I pulled some some quotes out and some segments out of my conversations of each of them and throw them into this episode. And I want to thank all of them for allowing me to kind of use our conversations in that way, rather than just taking their conversation from beginning to end. I'm kind of splicing in some of the stuff that they're saying and trying to weave it in particular themes that I'd like to talk about throughout the season. They may not agree with all the conclusions I'm drawing, although I think they they probably do in many respects, but I don't want to put that kind of pressure on them. I don't want them to have that kind of baggage to be associated with me but it's helping me formulate what it is that I think. And you can find out more about all of those important people by clicking on the links in the show notes, and I would encourage you to do that. It's obviously challenging times that we're in right now. None of us knows where this is all going to go with COVID-19 and coronavirus. And uncertainty is not something us humans deal very well with. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you and for all of us. First of all, that, of course, we would find antiviruses for COVID-19. But maybe more importantly, if I can say it that way, that we would all find the antivirus to our heart and to the anxiety and the fear that tends to energize so many of us. Uh, and, and me too. I'm, I'm implicated in all of it as well. And I do think some of the things we're going to talk about today in an indirect way, or maybe very direct way, will help you maybe get a better handle on this. But none of it is to diminish the real-life pain that a lot of people are either already in or are fixing to step into. It's crazy. But I'm grateful that... I I see a lot of positive, encouraging things from people. I've noticed, probably like you, there have been pictures coming out of China or maybe most notably off the top of my head, the canals in Venice. The pictures out of China show air that's clearer clearer because of the lack of human productivity. The canals in Venice show that the water is cleaner. And then there's been these like hashtags, like humans are the problem or we're the problem. So first I want to say, of course, there's a lot of baggage that comes along with humanity. But we start to cross the line when we view ourselves as the specific problem. Um, We are a problem, but we are also really beautiful and good, and we're also the answer. And so I haven't formulated all my thoughts on that yet, 
but I find that it's worth pointing that out. So for every we are the problem hashtag that should be, there should also be we are the solution too. We are the answer. And I believe that's true even for those of us who hold to the Christian faith. So Jesus is the answer, but the best answers always wind up giving really difficult questions. So it just cycles us back into what do we think and how are we going to respond in all of this? And I think I have noticed a lot of really good evidence of people pulling together and there being a general belief in humanity, I guess is what I want to say. My theology isn't that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and that we need to get out of this place and get to heaven as quick as we can. My theology is that God is with us. The incarnation teaches us that God loved us so much that he came to be with us and that he's reconciling the world to himself. He's not reconciling. God didn't reconcile his son to him. He's reconciling the world to himself, which means that he loves the world. He didn't come to condemn it. He came to save it. And we're all a part of that process. So we are the problem, but we are also very much the solution, and we can't give up yet. Well, that's just that we haven't even gotten into the good stuff here yet. But um, if you if you like the show, as always, feel free to review it, star it, share it with others, and hopefully this will help in these pretty difficult times that we're in. Okay, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about René Girard today, scapegoating and mimetic theory. Girard's works played a prominent role in my life. I see how often my desires are so often the desire of the other person, that the other is stirring up inside of me jealousy or envy. And I see it being played out right now in our culture regarding the coronavirus. The fears of one person wind up stirring up the fears of another. And the idea of scarcity infects the one group. And then sooner or later, it'll affect the other group. Soon, everyone's fighting over resources, not even because they know if the resources are scarce or not, but because the impression has been given that they're scarce. Have you noticed that? We are very relational creatures. And what the other person wants has a big influence on us. Take toilet paper, for example. In the course of like one day last week, all the stores were wiped out. What was that? I doubt anyone has statistics you know, like the data about overall toilet paper usage in America. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe someone at Charmin or whoever has this kind of empirical evidence. But from what I can gather, there really isn't, in the big picture, a toilet paper shortage supply in our country. Uh, or take hand sanitizer, same kind of thing. We have, the, we have the ability to make plenty of hand sanitizer. So it's not going away anytime soon. But when I see the other person buying 12 bottles, it makes me want to buy 12 bottles. And then when you throw images of lots of us buying 12 bottles of hand sanitizer all over the internet or 12 packages of toilet paper all over the internet, guess what? You get everyone feeling this anxiety and seeing what the other person is doing, and, and then we all start to buy this stuff. It's pretty powerful. All of this is a part of Gerard's mimetic theory basically says, I don't just desire, I desire what you desire. And then how that ultimately turns into a type of scapegoating. And, and you just watch, man. Just watch how people 
are quick to blame the other person. And it's not even just blaming scapegoating. It goes a bit deeper. In scapegoating, you see in the other person the the agitation being revealed in the in the other person, the intensity with which people go after each other, or I should say the agitation that is revealed in me as, as I've been known to scapegoat. And we do it all the time. We want to project our fears onto the other. And so we blame. We, you know, most recently we've blamed the Chinese or we blame the president for acting slowly or we blame those opposing the president for stirring up anxiety. And it becomes obvious after you've seen this for a while that what we're really doing is just projecting all of our internal agitation upon the other person so that we can punish them. It gives us somebody, it, it justifies our need to want to punish what's inside of ourselves by being able to punish someone else. Girard says, the victims most interesting to us are always those who allow us to contemn our neighbors. I don't think all the politicians are bad people, though certainly some of them probably are. But I do think the system that we're all responsible for creating, for creating is really broken. And it winds up preying upon our scapegoating tendencies. So that, and you see this being played out all the time right now, so that the liberals can say something like, hey, you were victimizing the elderly for the sake of political gain by wanting to get America back up and running again because we know that the elderly are most at risk to this coronavirus thing. And the conservatives can turn right around and say, you're victimizing the future of American children because you want to stop the entire economy to save a small number of us. That's the idea. The victims most interesting to us are always those who allow us to condemn our neighbors. You're seeing that played out. Meanwhile, of course, right now, there are really, and always, there are really important discussion points contained within both of those viewpoints. It's fascinating. The future of America does have to be thought about. And the elderly do have to be thought about at the same time. And wisdom tells us we have to get together and learn how to live together, not to take the quick fix, the shortcut of getting to a solution on everything and then forgetting how to relate to one another. No, we have to listen. We have to talk. Well, that's some of what James Allison says here in a moment. But first, we're going to let Peter Rollins briefly set up Rene Girard, and then we'll hear from Dr. James. Oh, it's Dr. Peter, too. They're all doctors today. But I can't say doctor every single time. That'll just get old quickly. René Girard, as you know, he was an anthropologist and, and theorist in various fields, very interesting figure, who postulated that um, the kind of central drive of the Jewish and Christian religion is an overcoming of scapegoating. That what happens is uh, basically we learn to desire through the desire of others as mimetic desire. So I start to desire things that you desire. Uh, if, if you're going out with somebody and I'm really good friends with you, I find myself starting to desire who you're going out with. Um, and I think it's my desire, but actually it's kind of I'm mimicking you. But then that causes a problem. Uh, the problem is now we're in conflict <laughs> and I might kill you or you might kill me. And so early religions provide a way of trying to manage that. And they actually have a, a goat that you put the sin of the people on and you, know, you do this ritual where you kill the goat, or you send it into the desert, et cetera, et cetera. And then ultimately, René Girard says that uh, scapegoating mechanism 
the whole point of religion is not about belief, but about breaking that mechanism, realizing that uh, the, the person that we put our lack onto is innocent. So Christ is innocent. We want to kill Christ. Christ is innocent. Why does scapegoating work? Scapegoating works because when people are very, very troubled by violence, <laughs> in other words, some sense of malaise, that something is wrong, that everything's going to pieces, that order is not holding, once that sense breaks out and they fix on a person whose fault it is and punish that person by expulsion or killing or whatever, and then find themselves with order restored, it's worked. They have done a limited act of violence, and the result has been everyone at peace, which was exactly Caiaphas's point. <laughs> it is better that one man perish than that the whole nation be destroyed. Uh, Caiaphas had it, had it beautifully, um, beautifully succinct. So it contains violence in the sense that both that it is a violent act, killing or expelling someone, and that it holds back. And we use the word contain in, in exactly both those senses. To contain means to have something inside it and to hold it back. So to name that violence, that is contained violence, one initially thinks that's the way to peace, and it is. However, before there's peace, there seems to be more violence released. Well, that's the, and that's the difficulty, is that the moment you point out that actually peace depends on a violent lie, um, <laughs> uh, it doesn't lead to peace any longer because no one is satisfied with the final result. Everyone says, but you shouldn't have got that person. You should have got this person. No, you shouldn't have got that person. You should have got this person. In other words, the peace doesn't get made. Mm -hmm. It's only when people are blindly uh, committed to doing something and they don't realize how awful it is that it can work. When people say, or, or when they say it may be awful, but it's necessary, and they all agree that it's necessary, then it works. But the moment you say it's not necessary and it doesn't really work, or it only really works for a very short time and then you have to do it again, the moment you say that, then effectively, yes, you're pulling the plug on the whole operation and saying, oh, so now we have to work out how to live together yeah. without these shortcuts to covering up our differences and pretending they're not there by ganging up on someone else, which is much more difficult because that means that everyone has to do that. <laughs> Scapegoating is a shortcut. It's a very effective shortcut. It works because it releases violence. It condones violence and then it releases violence. And it feels like it's the only way. For example, the threat of war keeps war at bay, which is a type of violence that contains the violence, which means what we really believe is that violence is the only way to peace. This is what we sometimes refer to as the Pax Romana. It's the peace of Rome. Like Rome said, there's peace. And they could say there's peace because if you disagreed with them, they would crush you. So Pax Romana is the peace of Rome. 
uh, when Ronald Reagan built up the military in the 1980s that effectively ended the Cold War. It was Pax Romana. It was the threat of violence. The threat of violence led to peace. It's interesting. Now, Pax Christi, that is the peace of Christ, is different, and it's actually built on peace. There's no threats. It's just love. Kenotic, self-giving love. It could revolutionize the world, but of course, most Christians don't really get it. Then again, who am I to say? I don't get it half the time. I'm so conditioned by the world and by my own sometimes agenda, by my own sometimes privilege and status. I've benefited from my own privilege. I've benefited from being who I am. I come from a country that was built upon scapegoating and diminishing, denigrating, and brutally killing other people to establish our country. I mean, most notably, I shouldn't say most notably, the indigenous peoples probably have something to say about that. But the thing that is on our imagination most often probably is the relationships between blacks and whites. And I got to tell you, my race, I'm a Caucasian, uh, so I have benefited from, from scapegoating. And I can't think of a more intense version of scapegoating than lynching. For anyone who hasn't read James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, that's a beautiful book, man. It's a great book. James Cone, who is an African-American theologian, just does a really great job of connecting the dots, at least he did for me, and seeing how we lynched black people on the tree was so similar to how the powers put Jesus on the cross. Julia Robinson Moore and I had a discussion about some of these things. Um, unfortunately, you know, the history and the um, racial ideology that plays into that whole lynching, the whole history of lynching was ignored. And so um, the light bulb started going off there because he actually talked about one of America's prime scapegoats in history, and yet he doesn't foreground the history or the, um, the uh, golly, the political, the social, the economic uh, context by which uh, Black people have been chosen as scapegoats. But, um, you know, he, he, it, it worked for his theoretical explication of mimetic theory, but there was so much more meat to that. I mean, and then when I got to violence and the sacred, it, he kind of... I don't know, there's like whole paragraphs where all I could do, I could see, oh, well, I just need to put um, the Ku Klux Klan <laughs> as the lynchers and uh, black communities as the victim. And this could, this is playing out now and it's not playing out in ancient primordial history. It's playing out in, uh, you know, 2008 or 2020. It's, it's, it's playing out in, in these areas. So, those are those are my wake up moments where I'm reading some of his most seminal books on mimetic theory and saying, wait a minute, I can just put and and it's not just black people. I just I do African American history, but any other race that's non-white that's been colonized or oppressed in particular ways can fit into that paradigm. So, I asked Julia why it was so difficult for white people 
to connect the dots with all of this? So I, I want to talk about whiteness for for a second. So whiteness is is a socially constructed category, and it's been socially constructed so much that it's um, it's part of something called what scholars call systemic racism, meaning that it's embedded in the system. So when you have a privileged um, idea of a class that's been symbolized just by skin color. Um, it can be so embedded in a system that it becomes invisible. It becomes the norm. If you think about, if we go back maybe 30, 40 years, you think about Band-Aids. When you saw Band-Aid, it was flesh colored, but the color that Band-Aids matched were predominantly Euro-American, um, you know, Asians and Africans and Hispanic people or Latino, Latina people, they were not, um, you know, those band-aids didn't fit the skin color. And so, I, I mean, that's a very small thing, but whiteness and the social construction of whiteness, which is all, which is always predicated on anything that's, that's uh, skin color, not white, is embedded in so many um, systems of America that it becomes the norm. So... When something is that normal, you don't pay attention to it. It's, it's almost as if you have to be awakened to the um, to the idea of it. Um, I remember I, I'm a university professor, so sometimes I would get predominantly white classes, and I would ask them to um, just do research on you know, an African-American subject or to do research on um, the history of some civil rights movement. And uh, overwhelmingly students would come back and said, you know, I, I never had to think about race in this way. So I would ask them, I said, well, why do you think that is? Why haven't you have? And they said, well, this is the first time that they were in close proximity and actually had to take time to observe and study and read about a race other than their own. So um, I think Euro-American society, Western society has been so preoccupied with making sure that um, white Euro-American white culture is the norm that people don't, people are not aware of their own privilege and their own class status. And even myself as an African-American woman, I may be totally conscious of race, but I'm not always totally conscious of my class. I'm a professor, I have a little status, I'm, I'm married to an engineer. So I live in an economic bracket that a lot of people can't boast about. Or, so a lot of times I'll go in and I'll you know, be totally unconscious of my economic um, privilege that I walk around in and somebody has to awaken me every now and then and say, oh, no, no, everybody is not like living like you. I'm thankful she talked about ways in which she can be blind to other people, too. And by the way, you know, you've found someone who understands scapegoating a little bit when they can easily offer up ways in which they know that they have been privileged or ways in which they know they have benefited from a particular power system. This is extremely important because it speaks to a deeper issue. Personally, 
I don't think the deepest problem is a black and white problem. And by the way, I'm not saying that. That's what Julia was saying. But I don't think that the deepest problem is a black and white problem. I think our deeper problems have to do with mimetic desires that escalate into violence that is then projected upon the scapegoat. That's our deeper problem. And I call all of that sin. And I think that's what the Bible calls sin as well. I love the nuance that Peter Rollins added to our discussion about Girard mimetic theory, envy, and jealousy. I think Girard is brilliant. There is, I think, a supplement that psychoanalysis adds to René Girard. And um, Shizak talks about this. He only mentions Girard briefly. Uh, but in one of his books, I think it's The uh, Incontinence of the Void, he talks about Girard. And basically what Girard does, is I want to make a distinction between jealousy and envy, right? Jealousy is where I want what you have, right? So I want the house that you have, the job that you have, the person that you're going out with, right? And René Girard beautifully shows the mechanism that why that results, why that happens, where jealousy comes from and how to overcome it, right? So that, and how re religious, uh, liturgy and religious ritual can help us overcome jealousy. Envy is where I desire what, who you are. I desire the type of relationship you have with the thing. So if I'm envious of you, it's not that I want your partner. It's that I want the type of relationship that you have with your partner. Um, I'm looking at you and I think that you're whole and complete. I think that you're enjoying life. What, what's called the non-gastrated other, right? In LA, you see it everywhere. everywhere. People are walking around. They look beautiful. They look really cool. They exhibit themselves like they've got the perfect life. Or Instagram, you know, the tagline of Instagram is the non-gastrated other, or it should be anyway, if it's not, right? It's, a, um, it's this, this fantasy of the other that is substantive without lack. Right. Now, what psychoanalysis brings to the table, particularly Lacan and Shizek, is the notion that Christianity not only uh, critiques jealousy, that mechanism, it also critiques the envy mechanism. And that's where I don't think Girard has as much to say. The way you break the envy mechanism is to show that the other is divided, is to show that the other, even if they've got a better life than you, is not whole and complete they also are uh, touched with the trauma that is life, right? There's the traumas that happen to us and there's the trauma that is us. And they are touched by the trauma that is life. And once you see that, you are freed from the mechanism of envy. And in Christianity, the way that happens is again, the self-divided God. That's why psychoanalytic the theology, uh, the Lacanian type, really explores that because when you realize that the other the absolute is divided as well then you kind of what the point of that is to realize that everything is divided we are all uh, we none of us are uncastrated and therefore we are able to calm ourselves down and do less violence in the world this, by the way, is what sin is, right? Sin for me is not a theological category that's got, well, about being bad. It's not about being nasty or bad or chewing gum or drinking booze or whatever. Sin is a category of, it's, original sin means original lack. So sin is just lack. And for me, uh, any attempt to fill the lack that we feel is, is sinful activity, whether it's having a kid, whether it's having 
money, whether it's working for charity, anything you do that tries to fill the lack is technically sin, as in it's destructive behavior for you and for others. And in the Bible, there's, there's talk of forgiveness of sin. <clears throat> and if you think of sin as lack, um, uh, there's two types of lack, right? If you have no money, you've got no money. But if you have debt, that's a nothingness that's something. So there's two types of nothingness. There's nothingness that's nothing, and there's nothingness that's something, right? If you're not talking to your partner, there's a, there's a nothingness, a silence that's just silence because you're not talking. And there's the silence of you're not talking, right? <laughs> that, that, that silence means something. So we all know what this means. Now, if you pay a debt, if you have a debt, right? And that's where the problems are. It's not the lack of money. It's that you're getting letters, people saying you have to pay the debt. It gets you into jobs that you hate, et cetera, et cetera. If someone pays the debt, they fill the lack. You owe me $100, somebody pays the $100, we're, we're good. But if you forgive a debt, you don't pay it, you render the nothingness nothing. You render the nothingness that, that's something, which is debt, into the nothingness that's nothing, which is having no money. <laughs> and um, in Christianity, the idea is that not the payment of debt, right? The year of Jubilee was the forgiveness of that. It's not filling the lack, making us whole and complete. It's rather forgiving it, as in making the lack, uh, robbing of a sting, making the nothingness nothing, making it something that we can, that we can bear and actually something that's productive. So this is the whole meaning of, of forgiveness of sin. This is the whole meaning of, I think, what Gerard is doing with scapegoat mechanism. And I think it has to be supplemented with what Lacan is doing with this notion of the, the divided subject. And the envy piece and the distinction between jealousy and envy. Yeah, I think it's important. And it was funny because Shizek put me on to that. I, um, I think it's very important because both of them are like... I think fundamentally connected to what's called a death drive. So they're fundamentally connected to a type of violence and destruction that is particularly human. Um, you know, there's all this destruction that's just part of being 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 alive, right? There's lots of evil and animals eating animals, but that particularly human type of suffering is connected with very profoundly with jealousy and envy. And I think Girard's work is fantastic on jealousy. And Lacan's work is fantastic on envy. And um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in envy as the, the problem, uh, the kind of, that the, almost the more intractable problem. All of this is around fantasy. When you, when you want to boil all this down, it's like all of this is around the fantasy of oneness. Like, so whenever I look at you and I want what you have, it's because I think what you have will, will, be something substantively good for me because I'm not going to kill you if I just think that you know taking your house is going to be slightly nicer than my house right I might be right. a bit pissed off with you I might be a bit you know wee bit jealous but I'm not going to kill you it's 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 the point when I start to not even consciously but unconsciously look at what you have and think oh that would fix everything that that's that's where the trouble comes and also with envy, it's the same thing. It's when I look at your life and I think you've got everything, you're just so happy, you're just so, you know, content. I might, I want to kill you. I want to get rid of you. Like so much, Hollywood, so many Hollywood movies are about, you know, the body's got the success of pleasure and we want to take, take it away from them. So, and as so many problems today are, are very similar. So when you think about it, um, you can boil so much. I mean, I would say um, all of the truly human evil can be boiled down to 
this frenetic pursuit of the thing that will make us whole and complete. And that connects with jealousy and that connects with envy. And our ability to be freed from that will provide the future for ourselves and for our world. Like if we can't break free of that, it's going to destroy us. It's eventually going to destroy everything. Um, that's why I actually think that it's probably very unlikely that there's much intelligent life in the universe because there's this whole paradox of the universe should be full of intelligent life. I mean, it literally should be full of it. And yet we don't really encounter any. <laughs> and so there's a real, there's a paradox in cosmology about why that is. And one of the theories, there's like about 20 of them, but one of the theories I like is that when life gets to a certain point of self-consciousness, it enters into a type of death drive and it's so hard to get past that, that most, most civilized technological life forms will kill themselves before they get to interstellar travel. Now, each, each moment uh, in the development of life is very, very difficult. That's just another one, another threshold is very difficult. So whether or not it's true, I think it's true for us that, that our frenetic pursuit of that thing that will bring wholeness is what generates war, generates personal interpersonal conflicts and for me christianity is about salvation from that it's about a, a mechanism for breaking that so the community of believers is the community that's not free to pursue what will make them happy but the community that is freed from the pursuit of what will make them happy the church is the desert in the oasis where we are free to be unhappy where we are free to be dissatisfied and strangely the good news that in that dissatisfaction, we will find a certain satisfaction. I think that Caucasians, to borrow Rollins's language, in their frenetic pursuit of wholeness and oneness and completeness, lost their way. However, I don't really think for a second that if the roles were reversed, that non-Caucasians would do a whole lot better. And I'm not trying to offend anyone. Because what I really think we're talking about here is a human problem. Having said that, since I am Caucasian, let me talk to the Caucasians for a moment. I think white people have to admit culpability in all of this. So much of what we have in our country comes from the fact that from the very beginning, we set ourselves up to benefit more than anyone else. And we need to name that and repent of that. And we need to go out of our way to build relationships with people who are not like us. When non-Caucasians respond to all the frustrations that they're experiencing in this world with violence. I understand why they would. I don't condone it, but I can understand it. I mean, if everything had been taken away from me, I don't know how to respond. I'd probably respond better now that I'm older and I've gone through a few things, but when I was younger, I don't know, it probably wouldn't have gone well. When people who have been historically victimized in this country respond with violence, we as Caucasians need to not escalate. We need to figure out how to be patient, to absorb the violence with love and forgiveness. I know it's easier said than done. One of the ways we can do this is by continuing to dialogue about these very real problems that we all have. We should talk for as long as it takes. I've heard far too many white people say over the years, why are they still bringing this whole subject up? Or something like, why do they keep talking about it? I've thought about this a little bit. Let me offer an analogy. And it's kind of an intense one. So you need to prepare yourself. My family has experienced some pretty difficult things over the years. 
and though I don't want to quantify it and rank it, I suppose none of it was more difficult than when my sister was murdered in the late 1990s. Being with my parents through all of that and going to the sentencing and seeing the man who killed her, that was all really deep, hard, complex stuff. So imagine with me for a moment. Imagine that guy serving time, but after a few years, getting out of prison, being rehabilitated, becoming a normal, functioning person in our society. And imagine him moving into my neighborhood. What would my responsibility be at that point? Well, truthfully, I probably wouldn't go out of my way to connect with him. But at some point, as time passed, I can imagine that the forgiveness that I've experienced in Christ would compel me, or probably impel me is a better word, it would impel me to give forgiveness away to him. And so maybe I would do that at some point. But what if he started showing up to my house? What if he starts showing up to my house a lot? What if one day I said, you know what, I can't really handle this because you're being too flippant about what's happened in the past. Imagine if he said, why do you keep bringing things up with your sister? Why do you keep talking about it? I thought we were past that. You could understand how my response at that point would be something like, hey man, you don't get the right to say when we're done talking about it. You don't get the right to define any of the terms around this discussion. You were the one who offended us deeply. I'll have to be the one to decide when it's over. Isn't it possible that that kind of scenario can be superimposed over the African-American, Euro-American relationship in our country? Why would the Euro-American ever have the nerve to say, hey, why are we still talking about this? Isn't it the African-American's right to come back and say, you don't have the right, you don't get the privilege of determining the boundaries and how long we talk about this? And so as white people, we need to be patient and be willing to enter into the discussion whenever the discussion comes up. Now, I do think there are more constructive ways to talk about it than others. But in the end, I don't have a whole lot of room to complain because I've benefited the most from the system. And so I need to be mature enough to allow the other person to talk, to ask, to search for answers. I don't think this means that anything goes. I do think there are constructive ways to go about the conversation. I'm not a big fan of saying categorically that everyone should be treated equally. I think equity is different than equality. For example, as a parent, I've never felt that it was my job to treat all of my kids equally. Although, yes, often that's what I strove for. But the real battle was to treat them equitably. Because they were all different. They all needed different things at different times. I think this is a really hard thing to convince people of when it comes to society, though, and I get it, because it's not as neat and clean as just saying, treat everyone exactly the same. It's almost impossible to do that. For example, do you treat the convict the same as the non-convict? Are there certain expectations we can ask of some people who have had problems in the past? Of course, bringing up questions about convicts and non-convicts brings up questions about our prison system, which of course brings up questions of society. But I kind of don't think it will all be solved by just saying treat everyone the same. People need different kinds of things at different times. This whole discussion introduces 
another whole discussion around equality of outcome or equality of opportunity. To discriminate solely to gain equality of outcome would be, in my mind, a bad idea. For one thing, who are we even discriminating against? The person with no drops of African blood? How do we determine that? I mean, most of this color stuff, it's just, it has to do with pigmentation of the skin, and it's such a joke. Some people look darker than others. Some people may be more African and actually be whiter. How do we even determine who is who? Let's just say it was obvious who we could discriminate against and who we couldn't. Would we then just demand that all the people across our society, that all of them, no matter what, must make the same amount of money, must gain access to all the same amenities, must have every single exact same opportunity? It starts to get complex here, and this is the whole discussion between equality of outcome or equality of opportunity. To demand that everything is the same for everyone, for me, winds up being a type of socialism. And I'm not anti-socialism per se. Actually, I'm neither capitalist nor socialist. I'm a follower of Jesus. And I notice that everyone wants to co-opt Jesus into their political system. Well, it just happens to be my opinion that capitalism has hurt a lot of people, especially those not in power. But ensuring everyone gets exactly the same thing is problematic, too. Well, before I get too far off track, I do want to say I do wish that the Caucasians could take the lead on this, though, and realize that racism not only hurts those who aren't in power, but it hurts those in power, too. And in the end, it will consume everyone and everything. Recently, the idea of reparations has emerged in our culture's conversation again. Reparations has to do with whites paying blacks for their abusive role in the past. I wanted to ask Julia Robinson more about reparations. Um, so yes, historically, I think that, that the descendants of African-Americans are due rep reparations. Um, and I think in that vein, if reparations were ever to happen, I think America would be stronger than it ever would be because reparations would go probably a long way in eradicating the disparities and health and wealth and in education. My other mind, um, which is a little bit different than that, is that, um, well, it's a lot bit different now that I think about it. There's a scripture in, in the Bible where the Lord tells Abraham that he's his great reward. And it literally means he's the, he is his salary. And I think as Christians, if our identity, if African-Americans are rooting and grounding their identity as Christians, then their ultimate um, person that brings them justice, that restores what has been lost over generations, is the Lord Jesus. And to begin to petition him and ask him in prayer um, to do that. Um, so... And, and, and I think my Jesus mind is also very realistic that if reparations actually did happen, I think it would, um, it would be a very difficult and arduous and painful journey because of all the historic kinds of ideologies that have been um, perpetrated against African-Americans that are still entrenched in um, 
the people who hold the 1.5% of America as well, right? So I, I, I think it, it would be a very hard and arduous journey and it might do, might create more divisions um, than unity. Um, so I think only Jesus can work that out. And I think that while we're waiting for him to work that out, for those of us who believe the Lord, we can say, Lord, you are my salary. And because you're my salary, because you're my great defender, I know racism is out there, but Jesus has overcome racism. I know sexism is out there, but Jesus has overcome. And you'll give me strategies. You'll open doors. You'll bring right connections. And so so that that's my mindset there. The example I have is... Um, uh, church, I cannot remember the name of this church. This church in the South, they found out that members of their um, their founding members owned the members of um, the African American church, and they decided as a way of reparations to pay off that African American church's mortgage, and. That was a beautiful moment of unity where the churches actually were, were coming together and uh, a letter of repentance was, and, and forgiveness was, you know, was said between these two churches and uh, between that church, you know, uh, the white church toward the black church and then the uh, money for the mortgage was paid off. So I think that went a long way in healing the hearts of, of people. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I've wondered, I mean, I have, yeah, questions about it too, in terms of, I don't disagree with anything you said, and to expand on that, how how would we, reparations has to be more than just money, but it all almost always comes back to money. How would we even come up with a number? Like, I'm afraid, yeah. like if I knew there was a certain number that could pay the thing off, I would, I'd vote for, I'd do it in a heartbeat. But what if that number just keeps changing? Like, if we said a billion dollars, wouldn't it be, couldn't an African-American say, you're trying to pay me off with a billion? It's going to be two billion. And then it turns, it starts to turn into an economic transactional thing. Yeah. And, and then the, the other piece of that is um, it, it won't, reparations will not heal the wound of uh, the shared racial past and trauma of, um, of slavery and I say share it because even though um, Euro Americans were the perpetrators of slavery um, and African Americans were the recipients of slavery in, in very harsh ways, both whites and blacks damaged their psyches and their hearts, right? And so money's not gonna break open and puts the salve on those wounds. Um, blacks and whites actually have to go to the heart healer and ask, you know, um, the, the, the owners of slaves and descendants of slave owners, they have to go and, and ask the heart healer what to do, how to heal the racial divide, what are the strategies, what are the steps, and they have to ask for their own um, healing um, as they go trying to minister and heal other people. African-Americans who've been the victims of that or the survivors, let me say that, they've been the survivors of that past. They have to do the same thing. They have to go to the heart healer Jesus and say, how do I forgive? How do I let go? 
Um, and how do I move forward? And how do I come together in unity? And only the Lord Jesus has the power to actually endue or empower people to move in that way. Um, it cannot be done on this human impetus alone. You know, it's got to be um, a supernatural empowerment of Jesus. The question is about relationship with Jesus. You know, I mean, it, it may seem seem very cliche, but to ask the Father, say, Lord, I know that you love me, and if you love me, you'll take care of me. So, what what would you have me do? How would you have me respond? See, you know, because so, so then you move people from do's and don'ts or shoulds or shouldn'ts. You move them from all of those things to relationship. Because only God can change and motivate and transform people's hearts. Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. I would love to hear Tahanesi Coates and Coleman Hughes and Jim McWhorter talk about and, and have love infused into the middle of all the intelligence that they bring. But so yeah. often I, it doesn't feel like it is. But it's really intelligent stuff, but it's void yeah. of love. Yeah, yeah. Because love is only going to change people's hearts because people... How do I say this? Um, there, are, there are aspects of our culture that thinks that truth will automatically bring people to change and make the better choice or make more healthier choices. The truth doesn't always do that. A relationship and, and a good, loving relationships will make people change. Truth will not always make people change. And so I think people think, oh, if I just know the truth or if I just explain the truth, that people will do. Now, you, you need relationship and you, you need the love. You need a loving relationship um, to create that change. So, um, and that's a hard thing to learn because we are taught that if you just know the truth, that stuff will work out. But even if I know that I have to have surgery or this shot is gonna hurt, and I know the truth, you know, I need somebody to hold my hand if it, if I'm freaking out about it. <laughs> so, and I need somebody who wants to, glad to be with me, hold my hand while I'm getting the shot, not somebody that, you know, could not, you know, thinks I'm a burden, you know, so. It's a loving relationship that's going to change. Truth is relationship. Relationship takes forgiveness. I think that it's complicated, but at the heart of reparations, there would have to be a deep commitment to grace and forgiveness, which would be a miracle. But amazingly, something similar has been done before. Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission it was Bishop Tutu who gave us that beautiful phrase, there is no future without forgiveness. South African blacks calling South African whites to stand trial, finding them guilty, and then offering forgiveness? That might be the most amazing governmental move of all time. How great would that be if that could happen here? This whole idea of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of truth, reminds me of a part of my conversation with James Allison about victory and winning and losing. For most of us, 
what we want is victory. Yeah. And then once we're victorious, then we'll do the reconciliation bit. And what is very difficult for us to understand is that reconciliation is the victory. <laughs> that there is no victory separate from reconciliation. That is immensely yeah. difficult to learn because all of us want to win. <laughs> and the terrifying use, misuse of the uh, language of victory and so on in, in, in our faith is... Uh, Mm -hmm. um, is something really to watch out for. So I'm almost thinking of an economic transaction. So if I do this, then I'll get that. You know, if I, then I'll get the victory if I do this. But it, it more and more to me, I'm realizing Christianity is, you, you it's in the loss. It's in the losing. Right. It's in, yeah. It's, it's a how, not a what. That's what mm -hmm. I, that's how. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how I try to describe it. It's a how, not a what. <laughs> I've been fascinated for the last few years in the overlap between these discussions about racism and power and love and fear and discussions revolving around LGBTQ plus and power and love and fear. There are so many similarities. All of this started to unfold for me a few years ago when I reapproached my ideas about atonement and why it was I thought Jesus had to die. And by the way, unfolding is a great word because it's one of those words in the English lexicon that can mean two things at the very same time. To unfold is for something to fall apart, to loosen, to lose its definition. But to unfold also means to develop. So yes, my ideas of sacrifice, death, love, and atonement has been, thank God, unfolding and has made all the difference. I mentioned that to James. Well, it's, it's very interesting that you say that because um, that was exactly my experience. I was about, I forget how long ago, 10, 15 years ago, maybe, in the early 2000s, I was invited to talk to a chapter of the Presbyterian Churches group um, at the time that was um, exploring, you know, gay equality and changing the Presbyterian Church's rules on the matter. And they asked me um, to talk about this. And I said that I thought that, that, that penal substitution basically works by holding together a list of sins that have been paid for and don't you don't you damn well alter the list of sins or you're dissing the one who's made the payment in other words that the notion of a fixed morality and that was absolutely uh, tied together but that once you start to undo that understanding of atonement um, then all these other things open up and th there was a uh, an elderly guy there who it turned out was one of the officials of the university I was speaking, uh, who introduced himself and to all of those present and said that he had actually been over the last 20 something years at all these annual meetings of the Presbyterian deliberative body. And he said that inevitably he'd come to the conclusion that all the discussion about LGBT matters was a proxy discussion. Mm. And the, the proxy discussion concerning atonement theory, which was the untouchable, which was the third rail. It was the, the untouchable discussion that they couldn't actually have. Um, so it was very interesting. But I think, I think you're absolutely right, because it's, you know, a whole world falls apart if a sacrificial structure is being held in place by a sacrificial understanding of, of Jesus' death. It stops being the glue that he keeps together a particular cultural world.
it stops being the glue that holds a particular culture together. The whole world begins to fall apart if you stop believing in a sacrificial God. And so there's my answer to racism and reparations and forgiveness and a new world. I told you I was crazy enough to offer an answer. My answer is, may we all stop believing in a sacrificial God. If we do, then we'll stop sacrificing our brothers and our sisters. We'll see that they are just like us, that they're human. They're full of chaos and potential of life and anti-life. They're full of the texture, as I've been calling it, just like us. And ultimately, love is our only way because love is already with us in the middle of all the texture. <laughs> <laughs>